Welcome back to A Minor Detail, the show where we make and break news. It happens, folks. We make and break a lot of news on this show. It's been a hell of a week for, oh boy, for A Minor Detail uh, radio podcast. Uh, (laughs) Last Sunday, I had Valerie Irvin on the show, and she told a story about one of her gubernatorial competitors who uh, allegedly had called her place of employment and it was a whole snafu, and Minor Detail Radio ended up being featured on Washington's NBC4. It was mentioned by NBR Radio on the Kojo Show by Tom Sherwood. We were mentioned on by the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun. So we, we broke some news last week, and let's do it again tonight. I have a great special <laughs> guest with me this evening. Her, dan- her name is Danielle Metis. She is running for the Montgomery County Council at large in the 33-person crowded field. And it's sometimes, Danielle, hard to keep track of each and every one of you. But I would consider you as one of the top candidates. You've been endorsed by a lot of people. You have been running hard. And we're going to get into your personal narrative here in just a moment. But welcome to the show. You've been on with me before, and we talked about public financing, and that was An excellent show. We had a lot of fun. We had Bobby Lippman on. But this is an official interview, and you have made time on a Memorial Day weekend, a Sunday evening, and the final hurdle, the final stretch of your county council at-large primary, because we know that whomever wins the primary, whatever the four at-large candidates, will go on and very well likely will win the general election. So, Danielle, welcome to the show. Thanks so, so much for having me on. It's great to be back. And it's uh, great to be with you on a Sunday night here on A Minor Detail. Um, Why in the hell are you running for county council? What what would inspire (laughs) you to jump into politics at the craziest time in American history? Um, Well, of course, when I jumped in, you know, there were a handful of us who knew I was going to be, you know, joined by by 32 other crazy people. Um, (laughs) It's because things are such so crazy right now. I mean, I think, you know, it's always at those dark moments or those sort of, inflection points that I think um, real change can happen and that, you know, we are one of those points where we can, you know, lose the things that make America great, our democracy, our freedom of speech, our commitment to each other and, and, um, and our values, or we can strengthen them and we can say, no, we're going to go forward and become a better democracy and a better um, country. And of course, I believe the latter and that's why I'm running. I I think, um, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. And, and it really is that optimism that drives my um, my candidacy. Yeah, I, it, you're certainly an optimistic person, and I appreciate that you've stuck <laughs> to policy in this race. And that's that is refreshing. I like candidates that who can break down the the complex issues. And Montgomery County is for anybody who's listening, you would likely know that here in Montgomery County, and Danielle and I live. Uh, you live down in Silver Spring, and I live mm-hmm. over here in North Potomac, which is technically considered Center County, and you're below the Beltway. So um, what would they consider that? What part of the county? Lower County? Is that how they describe well, that? Down County, but also East County. I'm kind of in yeah, East, East Silver Spring, so I come on the edge over here. <laughs> yeah, East County. So, um, But I think that Montgomery Countyans, and, and, and look, I'm, I'm an implant. I didn't originally grow up here. I was not born and raised in Montgomery County. I came from the western portion of the county. And I know, Danielle, you, um, you grew up in New York City. And mm-hmm. that's a, I, that, I, 
I, I love New York City. In fact, um, with my job, I'm going to be traveling there uh, next Monday, and that's going to be. Oh, that's exciting! I, I, was, <laughs> I know. I love going to New York City. Uh, it's a blast. Um, take the train up. So I am. Um, it's and it's safe. I don't like driving in New York, New York City, so I just like to get up and go. Um, but you, you know, there's a lot happening in Montgomery County politics today, and the council could take a seismic shift in, in the direction that it will go over the next four years. And as I mentioned, there are a lot of candidates running, and part of that reason is because term limits passed in 2016, and we didn't know how that was going to break, and I didn't know how that was going to come down. Um, some people were for it, and some people against it, and I understand both arguments. But as a result of term limits, I believe, candidates have stepped up, and some councilmen have stepped up to run for county executive, and then it opens up this massive field. And then we had another thing occur that is an experiment in our democracy. We are doing this thing called public financing. Danielle, you're taking advantage of the public financing system, and I mm-hmm. want to just kick off the show to – you, you can explain this so well, and could you break down the system and talk about why you chose to use the public financing model? So, uh, yeah, thanks. I'd love to, um, because it is a really important part of my campaign and why I'm running. So the way the public financing system works at, at my level, so at county council at large, in order to qualify to get any public funds, I had to get 250 or more unique Montgomery County residents to donate Mm-hmm. And then I had to also get $20,000. So, you know, I have a minimum of those two. And once you get, once you pass those thresholds, then you can apply to the state and then to the county for, to get matching funds. And in my race, for the first $50 someone donates, it's, it's uh, match four to one, the next 50, three to one, the next two to one. And the donors can only be individuals. There's no organizations, PACs, corporations, unions, just actual people. Um, and that was really appealing to me for a number of reasons. One, I think it really opens up the field to a lot of people who don't have deep pockets, can't self-finance, or they don't have rich families, or you know haven't spent all this time cultivating um, wealthy donors. I'm a scientist. I'm a parent. I've been in policy. You know, this I'm not. I come from a pretty modest background. You know, there weren't going to be any deep pockets, and and I don't think that's how people should run their campaigns anyway. Because the, the flip side or, or the, the other part of that, you know, the other side of the coin is also that by, by saying you have to reach 250 people and get this money, it forces candidates to go out and talk to a lot of people. I've received donations of $5 and $150 and everything in between. And so I'm not knocking doors at one time and then sitting on the phone and, and you know, trying to get $6,000 checks or whining and dining people and so the people I'm asking for money and the people I'm asking for votes are the same people, and that's really important to me. Because when yeah. people actually invest in a campaign, they're really investing in democracy. They're saying, I want my $5 or $25 to go to spreading a message I believe in and supporting a candidate I believe in, and I'm willing to put my money behind it. So to me, this is a real game changer and, and to me a matter of integrity to really um, be a part of this system. But if somebody opts out of public financing, would you be less inclined, let's say if you were not a candidate and you saw a list of candidates who were taking advantage of public financing and then you saw other folks who were not, would you would you be inclined not to support that person who was not taking public financing? I, 
I would be because, or they'd have to have a really good reason because the option is there. But frankly, I think it's a lot harder work. And I think, you know, you should be able to be willing to put in um, that work in order to, um, in order to get the votes, in order to get the support. But so I'd have to really ask why. Why not? Why not appeal to everybody? Why just go to a few donors? Because I don't think, it, you know, there are, yeah, we know about actual corruption, but overwhelmingly, we talk about the influence of money in politics. I don't think it's really corrupt people. In, for the most part, it's not people who say, oh, give me this big check and I will vote this way. It's just human nature to want to do things for people who have done things for you. Somebody gives you a birthday present, you're going to want to give them a birthday present. It's just, it's, it's how we form human communities, right, this mutual obligation. So when you call somebody and you have coffee with them and you talk about their business and you get to know their family and they give you this big check and they're behind you and that's great, when they come into your office, sorry, I'm not, like, it's just, you think, well, they were nice to me, why shouldn't I? It's just unconscious. Yeah. So yeah. it's about avoiding that slippery slope. Not that I think anybody who takes a check from a company or from a union or from a PAC is evil. I just don't even want to be in that situation. I want to treat all voters equally. And if somebody maxes out to give you $150, and that turns into what, $750? Um, it's, it's, um, it ends up being three to one. So including this 150 it's $600. Okay, $600. And then you file for the matching funds with the state. They send you a check or they wire you the money. And so far, Danielle, how's that, how's that been going for your campaign? I mean, the fundraising part is going fine. The, uh, the paperwork side is a complete nightmare. <laughs> it's just, mm. um, it's just a mess. And it, because I mean, and, and to be fair, you know, nobody knew there were going to be so many people in it. Um, I think there were really great intentions, you know, when I get on the council, one thing I want to say is, great, here's the pot of money for public financing, and here's the money to hire somebody. Because we kind of gave the state this unfunded mandate. Here, you handle our financing. And there's yeah. one person. We, everybody running in this race knows Jared Demarinus and has had conversations <laughs> with yeah. poor Mr. Demarinus. And I have to say, he's been incredibly patient. Um, but it's just, it, it's interesting. I mean, the paperwork burden on the public finance candidates is so much greater. And I get that, of course, we want to be responsible with taxpayer dollars and we want to be transparent. Frankly, I think we should be transparent with all, you know, political funding. Um, but there's got to be a middle ground. I mean, and also, frankly, the, the Maryland finance system is, you know, you go on online. They set it up in like 2005 and nobody's changed it, I think. Like, it's just not exactly state of the art. Oh. So that's kind of frustrating. Well, I know. I, but again, as a, we're the guinea pigs. Somebody <laughs> You know, Danielle, as somebody who uses that system on a day-in and day-out basis, given how I write about candidates, I talk about um, campaign finance numbers and try to make sense of all this. You're right. The system is antiquated, and I think that's <laughs> generous. And really, the system, you go in, and there's an itty-bitty box. It's Maryland Campaign Reporting Information System. Sometimes it takes like 20 minutes to load the name into the system, and <laughs> it's a pain. But hopefully the state of Maryland will, will upgrade this, um, this really inconvenient online oh, portal. <laughs> yeah, and then you, you click the link, and then it suddenly downloads. Um, why can't you just access – I don't want to download the PDF. I just want to open it on my computer. I want to look at it. I just want to look at it. I want to download it because it takes up space on my hard drive. No, I just want to open another link and 
you're like me, I use Google Chrome for everything, and you just pop open another link. But we could stand here all night and complain about the system, and we're maybe <laughs> maybe we can speak to the governor about uh, working to fix this with the legislature. So um, there's, like I said, there's 33 candidates running, and there's so many good candidates, Danielle. There's so many good candidates, and you know, yes, the other day. I saw the recent campaign finance reports because last Tuesday at midnight was the deadline, May 22nd, to turn in your campaign finance reports. And I'm sure <laughs> I know. Most, yeah, right. So candidates were staying up, they were sweating it, they were working diligently with the teams to ensure that nobody gets fined because nobody wants to be fined by the State Board of Elections. You get your campaign, you submit it, click send. Your treasurer is probably like, now I need a drink. Um, so. Here you are, and you submit your campaign finance report. And so I, I was, you know, I was looking at all the reports, and based on a couple of different variables, but I think there are about fourteen or fifteen viable candidates out of the thirty-three. So about half. Mm-hmm. And then you can break that down based on the number of endorsements each candidate receives, their reach, their ground game, their door knocking strategy, their media, and you have a county of Democrats. How many Democrats are you trying to reach? What's the what's the magic number, Danielle? Oh yeah, that's the one that kind of goes all over. Like I've heard everything from, you know, twenty five to fifty (laughs) two. So um you know, that's what's really hard. Normally, you know, if you're running two people, you say, okay, fifty percent plus one. Um and or it's how you know what were the how many likely voters you know what was the turnout before what do we expect the turnout to be in this race it's a toss up because um, you know first of all in a four way race it's hard to figure that out anyway I remember when I first started to run kind of going into all these manuals because because of course when I decide to do anything my first step is well I have to go to the library or go online and read about it because mm-hmm. I'm just a nerd like that and um, <laughs> so I was looking at all this and I You're thought scientist. I'm a scientist I'm such a nerd I'm a professional nerd actually and um, and so, you know, you look at all these and you're like, okay, none of these calculations work, even for a four-way, you know, for a four-seat race. And then you put in 33 people and you're like, okay, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's anybody's guess, but, you know, the previous numbers don't really um, don't work. I can say that in the past races, it's been something like, you know, something in the like 47,000 would have been the average vote for the last, say, three elections, which were extremely different, so I wouldn't necessarily compare them all. Some had more, a few, you know, are less incumbents. But while I don't think anybody's going to get that number because there are so many people, you still have to run for that. Because there's so much noise, I'm basically running it a campaign the way I would regardless of the noise because I'd have to talk to that many people to find the people who have, you know, to find those people for me to be there for second, third, fourth, you know. Um, so in some ways I'm kind of ignoring the noise and saying, okay, well, that's interesting. Here's all these people. I'm going to still run my campaign, you know, the strongest campaign I would regardless. And, and frankly, I just believe in talking to as many people as possible anyway. Yeah. It's not going to be like, oh, my win number is 30 whatever, so I'm going home for the night. It's like, well, well you know, it, I'll talk to more people. What I <laughs> Exactly. It, what I've noticed in Montgomery County politics is that many of us who follow the race or involved in the race or are covering this wide race of candidates, we're all in this echo chamber, right? We see each other at the same events. I mean, you and I have run into 
each other countless times at various events and we always chat, but we, I, I find myself getting sometimes consumed in the online chatter. I get sucked in and <laughs> you know, the last couple of days is a key example. And I'm just like my, yep. my wife, my, my sweet, wonderful wife who, whom is like beating me over the head. She's like, do not get involved in this stuff because it's only going to be a nut <laughs> like this vortex. And she's like, you're going to get sucked in and you're going to want to see what the next person says. And I'm like, Oh, you know what? You're you're right. I should always listen to you. And she's like, I'm going to take <laughs> you're away. You're already computer. learning. Like, Look at that. Right. See. So new to I'm this, an, and you're already an expert. <laughs> I'm a husband who listens to his wife, and that is the best advice that any female and other male and married couples have said. Just listen to your wife. They're right. So it, we seem to sometimes, um, as candidates and journalists and bloggers and you know online radio hosts. We get sucked into this online chatter, and I really don't think that it's truly representative of the conversation that mm-hmm. you're having out on the street when you go to doors, because a lot of times people just aren't following this stuff as closely as we are, and we have to remember that, that this bubble Absolutely. of this Montgomery County um, insider bubble of about a 1,000 people who are involved and actively involved in politics, and it might be more than that. I, I It probably is. I'm just using that number because it's a nice even round number, but there's a there's a lot of us who see each other at the same events, including the candidates and their supporters and their staffs and their most ardent volunteers. I think that the conversations that we're not seeing, that we're not covering, they're happening at the doors. They're happening through phone mm-hmm. calls. They're happening through emails and social media threads. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch the dichotomy between people who are not necessarily closely following the race but have chosen their candidates versus the insiders who – one little thing happens and then it's cataclysmic, you know, it changes the entire dynamic yep. of the race. And it's just interesting to, to, to be part of that narrative as we're watching this. And so, you know, Danielle, you have us, you're going to have to separate yourself in this race. How have you done that? What's, what's the differentiating characteristic when they can point to you and say, pull out something tangible and say, Danielle's my girl. She's the one I want to, I want to be one of the four on the council. Um, well, I get that question all the time, right? Especially for the people who know there are so many, or the people who are just overwhelmed. Um, so why should I vote for you? What makes you different from the other candidates? And I would say there are really two things that really stand out. I mean, a lot of us have similar positions. I do think underneath it, you know, there are subtle differences. But um, to me, there are two things. But one thing, when so I think when somebody's trying to make a decision, they're not really making a decision based on your policies. They are saying, thinking to themselves, does this person see the world the way I see it? Yeah. So they're listening, looking to your policies to know, do you have the same worldview? Do you have the same values I have? Then they want to know, do I trust you? Like, are, do you really mean it? Or are you just pandering? So do you have my values? Do I trust that you say what you, what that you mean and, and I can believe that? And do you have the leadership to actually do it? Do I look to you and say, yep, that's somebody who's going to accomplish it? And this decision is made in a second or two. Like, it is so quick. Um, or it could be you could be talking, you know, you're having a conversation, and then you could see the click, like, and it's it's in their gut, right? It's not intellectual, or, I mean, I don't mean that it's dumb. I mean it's instinctive, kind of intuitive, and so, so when I so, and that's how I, you know I relate to people on those levels, you know, because we're relating to each other. There's a level of trust, a relationship you're building at the front door or on the phone, and I think there's really two things that distinguish me from anybody else in the race. One, I am a scientist. And it's not just that I have a degree or I've, you know, like, you know, um, 
being a total nerd and, and, and that it's, it's a way of thinking. I was attracted to science because of the way, sort of very logical approach. Um, and, and, you know, you and I have talked about this, you know, that it's not, it's not that I don't, you know, of course we all have very, you know, intuitive emotional reactions to things, but then I try to stop and go, okay, do the facts back that up? Is that real or am I being influenced by something else? And I think a lot of people never take that next step. What are the facts? What does the data say? Um, you know, because for me, it's really, I'm not going to be just saying, okay, what are the, what's, you know, let me test the political wins. It's what does the evidence say? And science also provides a method of decision-making that is unique. It's testing your hypotheses. It's being open to a lot of different viewpoints. It's very collaborative. And I would say the three things that really, when you think about scientific decision-making, it's collaborative, it's transparent, right? And there's a level of accountability. You can test it. You can say, wait, that's not true. Let me, you know, we need to, we need to test it and make sure it works. And so I think that that's a unique perspective to bring to government. To, to really, there's so many complicated problems that we have, whether it's, you know, doing, you know, looking at the demographic projections and understanding what that means for our schools, talking about our economy and what we need to do to grow jobs, you know, looking at transit. These are all extremely complex problems that and I'm comfortable dealing with complexity. That's, you know, that's like bread and butter to a scientist. So that's one thing that's unique. And, of course, the other thing is when people say, how do I know that you're actually going to stand up and be a leader and make change? Well, because I already have. I did it in most people's living rooms on their television sets. I did it in the, you know, on the radio and on, on the, and in the newspaper. And so I can say, you know, you know that I am not afraid to challenge conventionalism, not afraid mm-hmm. to challenge the status quo and stand up for something that's right because I did it and you saw me do it. And I stood up to this county council and this county government and made change. And so yeah. – and. And, and that, I think, is really powerful to people. I'm not, I'm not saying trust me. I'm saying you've already seen it. You can trust me because you saw it with your own eyes. And, and it's amazing how powerful that is. In, I mean, 80% of the people I've spoken to are like, oh, my gosh, you're that mom. I'm totally voting for you. And it's not some sort of celebrity. It's I saw you stand up for something, and I think you'll stand up for me. Yeah, I think you that's were the kind mom. of that gut level. The mom, the mom of Montgomery County, the, the free range mom. And you made right. some news back a couple years ago. And yeah. it was a big, it was a huge story around here because it was the classic setup of this is government overreaching into a mom's parenting decision. And people had all sorts of opinions. And I fell on the side of you because number one, I think what the, what local government did to you was abundantly atrocious. I think it was terrible. And my, my libertarian uh, <laughs> censors were all a Twitter ab- about this. And I remember <laughs> talking about this um, it, it just ad nauseum that this is such unfair treatment and how ridiculous and overreaching it was for the government to step in and say, this is how you should parent your children. I mean, it, it disgusted me. It made me sick because you always place yourself into the same position as you as a parent. You say, would I want the government coming in and judging me on my parenting decisions? And not only that, making threats. And I mean, it's, it's a real civil liberty issue. So, I mean, let's, let's dip into that just a bit because I know people, they know the story, but remind them of how important it was. And as you said, you showed real leadership. You stood up. And I think a lot of people in our community were behind you because they think of their own kids, as I just mentioned, and they don't want that to happen to them. 
So just kind of remind us, recap that story. All right. So it was 2005, um, actually it was 2014 in December. Um, I was out of town. My husband let the kids go to the playground and it was a decision we had made before that they could walk home from this park in Silver Spring. And they were walking home. Somebody called the police, please pick up the kids, bring them home. There's this real, you know, where's your ID? Who you and, and my husband's like, what do you like? What do you mean? Who am I? You're standing on my front porch. You brought my kids home. Um, so it was just very kind of, um, you know, tense. And, and one thing you have to realize, my husband grew up in the Soviet Union. So the idea of the authorities showing up on the front door and threatening them oh, yeah. is like a whole other level of, you know, scary. Um, and so, but this is what he's confronted with. And by the end, so he went inside to get his idea. Police officer followed him inside. He said, you know, you can't follow me. Oh, yes, I can. I mean, we honestly mm. should have probably filed a complaint about that. Um, but then we had the police saying, you know, like, how could you let your kids walk? Don't you watch, you know, it's dangerous. Don't you watch TV? And he's like, you can't, I'm supposed to make parenting decisions off of watching TV. Um, but, but finally, they, but by the time they left, there were six police officers and five police cars. And this is on a sun, Saturday afternoon, you know, still light out. It's a beautiful day. And finally we thought that was settled. Although my son called the middle of all that I'm in New York city at a family event and my son calls his mommy, the police here, and I think daddy's going to be arrested. So, of course, I'm oh. freaking out because I'm, I'm not here. My husband's staying there. He's literally talking on the phone. I can hear the officers in the background. Well, thankfully, he didn't get arrested. The police leave. But then a few hours later, somebody from Child Protective Services came, and um, they're eating dinner. And uh, says to my husband, you have to sign this safety plan, which says the children are going to be supervised at all times until we can follow up with you. Yeah. And he said, well, I'm, I don't want to sign anything without my wife seeing it or a lawyer seeing it. And she said, if you don't sign this, I'm going to take the children away right now. And she called the police back. This is a woman who had never seen the children and had no report of them being, you know, the police didn't say they were dirty or hungry or scared. And yet, because she had the power, you don't sign this piece of paper, I'm going to take the children. So needless to say, he signed the paper. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, that was frightening enough. And then, you know, we, CPS, they called us, you have to come in for an interview, but actually first we want to come and inspect your home. And I was like, wait, wait, the kids were walking home to the park. Go inspect the park. Like, why do you need to come into my home? No, you, you can't come in. Instead, so they said, okay, we'll call you back, but they didn't call us back. And so they showed up, the, uh, another CPS officer a few days later showed up with a police officer demanding to come into the house. And I was home myself during the day. And I said, do you have a warrant? And they said, we don't have to have a warrant. I was like, um, yeah, yeah. Wait, you're the government. You can't come to my Fourth Amendment rights. Um, you can't come to my house without a warrant. And um, and while he's calling Amen. his supervisor, saying she right, and I'm saying you can. She's on the phone. I said, tell your supervisor I'm invoking my Fourth Amendment rights. And um, and he's on the phone with the supervisor, it. and I notice he has a sticker on his lapel that's a visitor sticker to my children's elementary school. And I said, did you just go to my children's school? And he wouldn't answer. And then he's like, she's asking about school. Like, I'm hearing him talk to his supervisor. I said, did you or didn't you go to the school? Did you talk to my children without my knowledge or permission? He wouldn't answer any leaves. And I had to call the principal and go to the school to find out that, in fact, each of my children had been taken out of school class separately and interrogated by this um, caseworker who said things like, tell your parents you don't want to do this because it's too scary. So they're literally trying to manipulate my parenting through my kids. And... Don't you know there are creepy people out there who want to grab you? So these are the kinds of things I told my children. And honestly, that is when I decided to go to the media and, and try to get some attention. Because I just remember, I, I, like talking to you, I can remember it in my stomach, standing on the front steps and thinking, I am defending my children. You know, I'm standing in front of my castle here. 
you know, Fourth Amendment rights and realizing that they had just done a complete end run around me and were able to get to my children. Like, I couldn't stand between them and my children. They could just go right into the school. And that's when I thought, this is just completely wrong. And, um, and that's when we tried, you know, took the whole story public. We were found guilty of child neglect. So if we hadn't fought back, I would not ever be able to work in a school because I would have a child neglect charge and neither would my husband. And then a number of months later, the whole thing had kind of calmed down. And the kids, we were coming home from a six-hour drive. Children were acting the way children act after six hours in the car. A beautiful day in April. And we said, they said, can we go to the park? And my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, no, it couldn't happen again. That was crazy. And we let them go to a park even closer to our house. And they were supposed to be home by six. Never made it home. I learned, I finally got a call from CPS at eight saying you have to come answer questions. We had to go racing across the county. Um, and I'll tell you, that night is the night that this campaign was born, even though I didn't realize it then. Because we were sitting in the car, and of course I'm freaking out, going, I can't believe they're doing this to us. I, I just kept saying that. And my husband, who I said grew up in the Soviet Union, said, that's because you're naive about how cruel bureaucracies can be. And I just thought, wait a second. My husband grew up Jewish in the Soviet Union, and he's more prepared for this situation than I am growing up in a Western democracy. There's something fundamentally wrong with how our government is operating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, so, I, you know, and, and yeah, that's, and that was it. And that was the night, I think, that I, you know, I look back to that moment. I'm like, yep, that's when I said something's wrong and it really needs to change. Uh, we got the kids back and found out that they had been locked in a police car for two and a half hours, two blocks from our house. My son had said, I don't want to get in the car, but you can walk me home. I live two blocks away, and the police made him get in the car anyway. It was, they, couldn't, they weren't allowed to use the bathroom, um, and they weren't getting any food. And then if we hadn't grabbed, if these neglectful parents hadn't grabbed dinner off the table, the poor kids wouldn't have eaten until, like, midnight. But, you know, they, they, um, they finally released the kids at, like, 11. And uh, my son told me, I thought I was never going to see you again. I thought I was going wow. to an orphanage in the morning. And how old were they at the time? And they were 6 and 10. And, um, and I just remember back, saying, right? like, this is so wrong. We did. And we did very po- – I mean, literally, I've, I gave an interview to the BBC two weeks ago. Like, it went all over the world. I spoke to media in Russia and Singapore and Australia and England and every state of the United States, practically. And um, it, was, it was a huge story because I think, you know, a lot of people were scared by the idea. Everybody feels like their parenting is judged. But to think that it's nah. judged by the police, that it's literally criminal, just, you know, not whether or not you feed your kids, but whether or not you let them have the exact same freedom that we had as kids and the same freedom that is still the norm everywhere else in the world. Well, you, and that's you not know, illegal. Your, your situation transcended all sorts of divides, you know, politics. Oh, yeah. I had a, a few days ago, a friend of mine who lives in Baltimore on my Facebook status, he said we, – we were you know, in a thread. I can't remember which one, but he said, uh, oh, you're the free-range mom. He goes, you know, I, oh, I remember you. I'm going to give you a donation. Um, and um, I mean I, we all sat back and said this is not how government should work. This is not how yep. our government should tell us how to raise our kids. And people can have all sorts of opinion. But like I said, there was a lot of libertarian support behind you. Oh, and yeah. speaking, you know, speaking to somebody who is a is a core libertarian, you know, that is, it, it builds from the inside and out my personal politics about how I view our democratic republic that we have. I 
I believe that the government in this instance should fundamentally leave us alone. So um, I, you know, I, I applaud you for that. And to me, that showed all kinds of courage. And so I, I'm sure it readied you for what you would face in a campaign this massive because you're you to go all over the county. You're, you're all over the place. You, and so based on that experience, you've developed this notoriety and I'm sure that frames how you look at this race as a whole and how county government operates. So, you know, leading mm-hmm. into this next portion, Danielle, how do you view current Montgomery County government? And what are your what are your hopes once you you're elected, you get onto the council, you're representing the entire community of Montgomery County, you know, all these different places. How do you view county government as it is now and where would you like to take it over the next four years? Well, I think, I mean, a lot of us come to Montgomery County because we really like living here. There's an amazing community. It's a diverse community. It's a really dynamic, interesting place. Um, And so, you know, I really want this county to be all that it can, but I think we fall short a lot of the time. Um, I, you know, I've spoken to people all over the county. I mean, I've been, you know, next week I'm going to go back um, to stand up Damascus because I had such a good time and they know I'm very supportive of the community up there and Germantown, Clarksburg, you know, Dickerson, Potomac, Burtonsville, Laytonsville, Olney, you know, Rockville, Gaithersburg, you name it, like Montgomery Village, Washington Grove, you know, Silver Spring, Tacoma, like all over. Um, and um, it's a phenomenal place. And there's amazing people here. But I don't think the county government is serving them the way it should. I think, first of all, we do have a bureaucracy. And I got to say, well, I want to say, first of all, I do believe government can do good. I'm not anti-government. I don't think we should have to shut the government down. But I also think that institutions kind of end up kind of stumbling, you know, get, you know, be it big and and end up, you know, forgetting their actual mission. And um, and I've spoken to, you know, parents when I talk about the, you know, first of all, 80 percent, at least of the people I speak to, at least are like, oh, my God, you're free range mom. You know, very supportive. They know the story, but they also relate to it, like you said, like a government issue. I've spoken to small businesses and they know that I understand bureaucracy and they can, they share their frustrations. So I think we need to have a government that, I mean, you know, the sounds cliche, but really is more, I wouldn't even say customer service, just people focused where when, for example, I've, I've spoken to so many small business owners who are so frustrated with the permitting process. First of all, we should not have residential and commercial permitting in the same place. Yeah, you know, businesses right. and, and res- it's just a business when they're waiting for a permit every, you know, day is a ka-ching. It's just another thousand dollars. They're paying rent. So they're paying, you know, they're, they're already paying salaries and lawyers and so on. They need to open those doors. Um, so they should deal with them separately. And then that's part of the reason why Montgomery County has a terrible track record for starting and, and retaining small businesses. Um, I've spoken to people where just, you know, the bureaucracy and the frustration it's not even that they want to reduce taxes or regulation. They just want to feel welcome, and they just want the process to be streamlined. When somebody wants to start a small business, we should say, thank you for wanting to invest in our county. Tell us what you want to do, and we'll tell you what we need from you. Without even, I'm not even talking about changing the regulations yet, although we can. Um, I mean, let's just change our attitude. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, it's like the stereotype we have, like the French bureaucracy, except we're like a, a one county <laughs> You know, and I've heard from um, a man who was trying to, there was a woman getting a residential permit, and she was telling me the story about the man she befriended on the line trying to open a pizza shop. He'd been to six different offices, 
Oh, no, sorry. No, no, you need to go there first. Oh, wait, no, you need to go there. Nobody could say, here's what you need. Get this before you do that, and then go there. Here's the order. They're just standing around like this man has all the you know, time in the world. He's gone to six different offices. He just wants to open a stupid pizza shop. Why is this so hard? I know somebody else has opened a yoga studio, 100-year-old building. He knew there was no way to make it handicap accessible, which was unfortunate because they actually catered to a lot of veterans, and they, they would have liked to have been accessible. But it was just you know, the building couldn't be made that way, and they got that grandfathered in. They do all the required adjustments. The inspector comes in. He sees this beautiful wooden counter that my friend David Jackman over here at Up Yoga has made. He's a woodworker, reclaim wood from a barn in Frederick. And the guy says, oh, that's a great counter, but you're going to have to cut it down. Well, why? But I work so hard at it. Why? Because it's not wheelchair accessible. Um, a wheelchair can't get up these stairs. This room isn't wheelchair accessible. Oh, sorry, that's the rule. What? Like, that's just illogical. And that kind of stuff makes me crazy. What do you, like, yes, we want places to be ADA compliant, but since we know this place isn't, why are you making the desk ADA compliant? Like, how does that make any sense? Thankfully, you figured out a workaround and you didn't have to cut down this beautiful desk. Uh, Johnny Melger, who runs this wonderful place, Johnny's Kebabs in Germantown, he, I mean, so many hoops he had to jump through to, to get through his inspections. And finally, literally, it's 6 a.m. He's going to open that day. He has a big catering job. And the inspector comes in. He says, you can't open. Why? Because the weather strip under the front door wasn't there. He's like, can you just wait? I'll run to Home Depot. Nope. I'll, give me a, I'll come back. You're kidding. Like, what? It's a weather strip. What do you think it's going to contain? Meanwhile, he said he says to the guy, did you check any of the other restaurants? Because I'm pretty sure their weather strips are gone and they're still operating. Like, what? you know, probably didn't say it quite so bluntly. <laughs> but why? Why? Why are you, like, why are we getting in the way of these people who right. are just trying to start a business? They want to invest in our county. Like, well, what investment do you do to turn away like that? <laughs> well, I wanted to point out that Seven State did a blog post a couple of weeks or maybe about a month or so ago about the number of businesses who have set up shop and it was excellent reporting and many of the candidates shared it and I, I thought it was such important work that Adam Pagnuccio had written and I I was just blown away. Six businesses had set up here? I think that's abysmal. That we, well, we, six we had, had to... remained. It was a net of yeah, six, I, but still that but, means all the other ones either left or failed. Like that's terrible. It's <laughs> Or failed, so something has to give, and there is a real attitude among the business community that they believe that Montgomery County is traditionally unfriendly to their interests. And so, how would you respond to that? How would you ensure that at least that they would? I mean, they need to have a seat at the table. The business community absolutely are the ones who are creating the jobs in this community, and I feel very strongly about this 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 specific point that. Somewhere along the line, you have to start listening to folks who make a tangible economic difference inside of the community that we all want to see grow and prosper. I, I mean, that's absolutely the case. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, in fact, so I've had a number of conversations with the folks at the Economic Development Corporation. And based on the data that Montgomery County is generating, most of our jobs will come from expanding and retaining existing businesses. You know, there may be a role for an Amazon or a Lockheed Martin. You know, there's some big companies, and there's, there's certainly a role for that. Most of our jobs come from growing the businesses here. 96% of our businesses have 50 employees or less. 84% have 10 employees or less. Like, that's, we think of, you know, Montgomery County government. You remove the government and we're a small business economy. And so we need, one, 
to help, even if those businesses stay small, they're, you know, a restaurant or a, you know, a small salon, great. We need to make sure that they can thrive. Some of those 10-person businesses are going to become 1,000-person businesses. They're going to become 10,000 if they're given the right soil to grow in. And that means, so when I've talked to people, the biggest things that, that prevent small businesses from growing, I've heard um, access to capital, um, business-to-business introductions, that, that the county can literally play matchmaker and just really, – because most businesses, frankly, their customers are actually other businesses, whether it's a mailing house or an accountant or something. So may helping to make those introductions. Also, another uh, statistic, which people always kind of like do a double take, there are 27,000 jobs openings in Montgomery County right now, but we don't have the people to fill them. One of the reasons why these high-tech companies can't expand, they don't have the employees here. We okay. talk about our schools but we're not producing the people for the jobs. I just did a tour. So one of my big um, – when I, and by the way, when I say jobs, I'm not just talking about college and graduate degrees. I did a tour of the um, Plumbers Union, the facility in um, – which is right on the border with Prince George's County, and they actually serve the whole metro D.C. area. And they're hurting for people. The average plumber is 56. The average guy who climbs up the pole, in his 50s. The average electrician, hmm. in his 50s. We're, we're the young people. Why aren't we training plumbers and electricians and telephone? These are great jobs with union benefits, and our schools aren't turning enough people. So we're literally, we have this mismatch between the jobs that are here, and we talk so much about our schools, but we're not producing graduates who can literally fill the jobs that here. If Amazon comes with 50,000 jobs, they're going to have to import people. That's not yeah, going to help our county if we're not. So Do you want to see Amazon one. come to Montgomery County? Well, you know what? It's, I, I honestly, I can really say I see pros and cons. One, I think regardless of what happens, Amazon has put Montgomery County on the map. And we need to keep that momentum going, right? But I think Montgomery yeah. County absolutely has what it takes to be a high-tech hub. Um, there's no question that Amazon would create an entire ecosystem of high-tech spinoffs. And, you know, it, it could be a great thing for our county. Um, and, you know, I mean, I am concerned because, you know, the Pentagon's the largest office building in the world with 22,000 people, and we're talking about putting two of them at the worst entrance to the beltway in the entire system, that horrible turnaround on 355. So there's no question we have to make, like, major, major infrastructure investments, which I think right. is totally worth it. So I have no problem with that. Um, as a scientist, it's hard for me to say whether the deal is good because we don't know what it is. And I don't mean I get that nondisclosure while you're actually making it, but before we sign in any dotted line, the public needs to know. Yeah, what do because you think how are we ever going to know? What do you we think of know. the governor's? Yeah, I think I mean, there's not we, enough. We've... I think, honestly, we need more. I think it's a little too much giveaway and not, like, I think, honestly, what we need most of all, I don't think the richest, one of the richest companies in the world needs quite so many tax breaks. I think we need infrastructure. And I think Amazon, like Bezos, That's gets true. that, right? They want, like, you know, Seattle is a phenomenal city. It is amazing public transit. It has great schools. I mean, one, one of my biggest fears is affordable housing. The housing prices are through the roof. So we need to talk really honestly about what we're going to do to help folks um, in this county. But, I, but honestly, I, my, one of my biggest fears is who's on the county council because Amazon could be a great partner if you have people who are really willing to go toe-to-toe and negotiate and be tough negotiators. Who, who do you but want to work council- with? I mean, who would That's you really want to one. work with? 
Yeah, it's a tough one because I um, I have to be careful because I can't being a public finance candidate. I can't endorse anyone. <laughs> so yeah, I can. mean I, I would. Yeah, I can't I can't uh, endorse. It's considered you know collaborating. Um, I mean I've done events with people. I, you know I, I'd want to be with people who actually who get that we need we need infrastructure investments. Um, I don't consider development a bad thing. I do think we need to hold developers more accountable in terms of impact fees, in terms of working with the community. But, you know, we have 52,000, um, you know, a need for 52,000 more homes for our current population of affordable. And when I mean affordable, I mean affordable for me as well. I mean for every income level except the wealthiest. Like, I probably couldn't afford to buy my house right now, so it's a good thing I'm already in it. Um, we need more housing here especially if we're going to, you know, absorb something like Amazon. So I'm definitely not in development. I just think we need to have a better conversation between communities and developers. Well, I will say, Danielle, so, we live over in North Potomac, and I would love – I was telling my wife the other night, um, I, I was – went down, I drove to Silver Spring. I occasionally get over to Silver Spring for all these candidate events, but I, we, we've, we've a couple of times throughout the summer has taken a trip down to Silver Spring to walk in the downtown hub. There's a lot of energy there. I love it. Yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a, Kim and I are young people. It's an urban area. Um, and we're, it'd be kind of cool to live there. I, I've never lived even in a true urban area, except for when I was in Pittsburgh going to college and I lived in the South side and there was a lot of bars. There were a lot of, it was just always happening. And, and I'm glad I experienced that. But now we, we live in suburbia. I mean, we are like the textbook suburbia parents, um, you know, live on the outskirts of dc we don't live we're not in bethesda we're outside of rockville and i wouldn't consider rockville a big town it's it's, you know it's relatively small in comparison but nonetheless um you know i i would it's just so unique and but you mentioned affordable housing there's a house down the street that is going for like seven hundred thousand dollars we could afford that I mean, it's like right. it is a beautiful home, but it's like a regular two-story colonial with right. five bedrooms, you know, two, three bathrooms, and um, finished basement. I mean, in Hagerstown, it's just where, where I you grew expect up, to raise a family, like that was your sort right. of typical suburban home. Right, dog, kids. Right. I grew, I grew up that house. I guarantee you, two fifty max, maybe three at at most. And this is people are moving. People are moving north, or they're moving west, and they're saying, you know what? Are we going to save money battling this commute every day? We can take the metro, which is another problem in and of itself, yeah. or we can go ahead and we can move up into western Maryland where the housing prices are just dramatically different than here in Montgomery County. It's, it's, it's amazing because there should be young people who are interested to move into Montgomery County, and they can't afford it. Apartments are expensive, and I know that you don't support rent control, but you do support rent stabilization, and that's – I think that's an important distinction because people often confuse yeah. the two. Um, yeah. So what are we well, going to do? I think, What's this affordable housing Yeah, that's situation? exactly I – mean, and, and that's another reason why our businesses aren't growing because we need the dynamic energy of young entrepreneurs and young workers, but they can't afford to live here. They can't afford – you know, we're literally are losing that kind of whole dynamic energy – um, millennials are the largest generation in history, and yet Montgomery County's largest 
um, demographic is our seniors. And that's, I mean, I'm, thank God for that. My father is 80 years old. I'm happy that he has a senior community. But that literally no. doesn't reflect the demographics of the country. And that's because yeah. people can't afford to live here and they can't afford to settle. And that, you lose that dynamism, right? You lose that entrepreneurial you know, spirit, and, the, and like I said, those young workers. So we, honestly, the solution is we have to build more housing. You can't, I mean, some part of it is just, I mean, I realize you can't only build housing. We actually do need to, to that's why I believe in rent stabilization, especially while we're getting to that place of increasing housing, we need to make sure that we're not driving people out, um, you know, that rents aren't skyrocketing and, and people can stay and, and start to build their, you know, their their jobs and their careers. But um, we need to build more housing because some part of it is just simply the law of supply and demand. If there's not enough housing, there's not going to be affordable housing, right? You're not going to have the whole, um, you know, it's if only a few people want it. I mean, if only a few people can afford it, but a lot of people want it, well, guess what? If the price is going to go up. It's just, when people you know, economics think of, 101. When, when people think of county government, the, one of the first issues that comes to mind is education. Let's talk about your education plan. You are a supporter of universal pre-kindergarten and you're an advocate for that. And you say on your platform that it's a uh, universal pre-K um, for all three and four year olds it's a centerpiece for your policy agenda. How are we going to pay for it? So, well, first one step I want to say is the reason why I support it is that it's scientifically proven. So much data shows that it's one of the best ways to prepare kids that when kids get to kindergarten and they, or there's already a gap bet- like between what they need to be prepared and what they already have, they will struggle to close that gap for their entire life. Like it is that dramatic. And so ultimately, universal pre-K is a money saver. We have less special education, remedial education. There are fewer, um, there are fewer behavioral problems and truancy problems and drug problems. I mean, it's that dramatic. It's linked to so many things because when kids are – get off on the right foot early on, and they, they're successful, their entire life is different. So, so I want to say that ultimately it's actually cheaper than our current system. Of course, the transition from you know, having, um, not having universal pre-K and having to pay for all those other services to having it and ultimately you know, um, not having to pay for those services is obviously an expensive one. So what I would say, um, first of all, we'd phase it in. Well, actually, there's a couple of things. It would be right now um, we do have vouchers for Head Start and some um, subsidized child care for the poorest of the poor. And I would say what we do is we, as we add money to the system, we raise that means testing. Um, we know that these, we raise it so that the people who have no other options, so first we fully fund that program so the people who have no other options have good tra- uh, pre-K and then ultimately child care. I'd like to see also for the people who don't have other options. D.C. did a lottery, and they're finding it's not just um, lower-income folks, middle-income folks. I mean, child care is insanely expensive. When, when mm-hmm. we, our kids finally went to public school, it, we literally celebrated. It was like getting a raise because it was so expensive. Um, so just, uh, just really to emphasize how important it is. So we pay for it. You know, I truly believe if you look at my platform, I've got universal pre-K, for, you know, housing, transit, you know, more environmental programs. Um, so how, you know, great, pie in the sky, but how are you going to pay for it? That's always been key to me. Again, I'm a geek. I come back to the numbers. I'm not going to propose something that's irrational. Um, and that's why I'm so committed to really supporting small and medium-sized businesses. They could be, you know, everything from, you know, corporations to worker-owned com- 
you know, co-ops to nonprofits. I consider all of those employers who, you know, really add to the economy here because we can't dig any deeper in the same pockets. That property tax hike hurt me, I know, and it hurt a lot of people um, because yeah. just because my property got more valuable underneath me didn't mean my salary went up. So uh, how do I, like, my wages are the same, but now my house is more valuable, so I have to pay more for it. That uh, it doesn't, the money didn't come out of nowhere. Um, so, so we can't dig deeper. I am not, I don't, you know, believe in really raising taxes. We need more pockets, and that's why we need to grow our businesses. That's why we need more housing. You know, I had this conversation with the head of planning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the first time we sat down, he's like, he, he had this whole, like, 40-minute PowerPoint and ultimately, it was to convince me, look, if you want more economic growth, you, if you want all these pretty things, you need economic growth, you need housing. Literally, the third slide, I was like, yeah, we're going to need more housing. So what do you think we should put it? And he was like, okay, that was the punchline of my entire talk. I was like, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was like, I'm with you. Great. Let's build housing. Because like, it's all well, connected. So, so we it, it, really need to expand just what I was saying about the, the businesses. We expand, and that's how economic growth Expansion of social programs, economic growth, you know, they have to go together um, because we can't keep having these budget deficits where we're like, oh, living beyond our means. We, in addition to expanding economic growth, you mentioned earlier infrastructure. We have a problem. 270 is a problem. I-270 is a mess. I travel it almost every day. Well, in fact, I do. I mean, and I try to find back roads to skirt it, and then I get on 495 <laughs> We know that we we have been down, no pun intended, this road so many different times with candidates, with county government, with the state, and we're all scratching our head like, hmm, should we widen 270? Should we do reversible lanes? Or, you know, I, I don't agree with the governor's position to add toll lanes. I travel a lot in Northern Virginia, and I, I think it's bogus. I, I intentionally avoid the toll lanes, Danielle. I won't go on 66. Yeah. I'll go up 50. And same but thing I won't with 200. I hardly ever go on 200. Well, yeah, I use 200 a lot um, because Kim and I take it. I because I, I'm I'm right there and, and right outside of Gaithersburg, oh, yeah. so I hit the 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 Sam Ike Highway and I head down to 200, and then it takes us into Baltimore, and we can zip down to Annapolis. Oh, right. or we spend a lot of time on the Eastern Shore. It's it is convenient, but I I will tell you that I'm. I'm interested to see how we can develop bus rapid transit, maybe even on, mm-hmm. I know it's, it's part of the, the, uh, the on 29, but down three, uh, 355, that would be unique. That concept. I, I would think we could, we could I think it's critical. It. It's critical. Cause we know that, I mean, people say, Oh, we're going to expand the roads. Somebody posted a great um, picture from when, um, when 270 was expanded and they're like, look, yeah. 12 lanes, it'll be fabulous. And guess what? <laughs> I mean, they thought traffic is gone forever. It doesn't work that way. The no, more lanes you add, the more traffic you get. You just call induced demand. You bring more people. They're like, oh, good. The traffic, the, the road is empty. I think I'll move further north. Well, guess what? A lot of people have that idea. And they all move further north. We have to have public transit. Um, and that, I, I think bus rapid transit is a brilliant idea. I'd like to see it, um, you know, up 29, Beers Mill, 355. I want to see the, um, the um, Carter City's. Uh, you know, transit way, I, you know, I think we need what to about really cover the county. I'm sorry? What I'm not a fan of N83 because it's the same thing. It's the same, you know, we're just going to add more traffic. Um, you think so? And 
roads. I think, but but I do think that needs to be an absolute priority is transit between Clarksburg and Shady Grove. I think I'm glad we're doing 29, but we need to move that up because those people were promised, um, you know, access and they don't have it. And that's not, I mean, it's it's not fair. Total bottleneck. So that has to be a priority. Yeah. And, Another priority has to be the American Legion Bridge. I, 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 like I said, I take it oh almost God. every single day. You know yeah. it's a disaster, but is anybody willing to say that? What are we going to do? I mean, what is it? Is the second I bridge the that, alternative? So, well, I think really, um, whether it's expanding or double decorating or we, I mean, I think the American Legion Bridge is yeah. a bottleneck. That that's a place that really is mm-hmm. we need to improve that road and that bridge. I mean, before, when I first moved to DC, I moved in '97. I was living in DC. And I was commuting to Noah in Silver Spring, so I never took mm-hmm. the Beltway. And I remember listening on the radio, and they're like, and, and literally to me, the American Legion Bridge sounded like the Bermuda Triangle. Like it's where cars just stop. You know, I, was, I didn't even know where it was, but at first I was like, oh my gosh, I never want to drive over the American Legion Bridge. You know, it's like, and that was in '97. So yeah. you know, it, it was a problem then, and so that's one place where I think we absolutely need to build a better bridge. And there's one. I mean. I support necessary road infrastructure. It's not that, you know, everybody's going to bicycle to work every day. Um, but our priority has to be moving more people um, together, and that's public transit. Yeah, I, I agree. It has to be, and we have to also take a, a hard and serious look at our metro system. And I know Delegate Mark Corman has been a real leader on that program. Yeah, uh, yeah and Brian Feldman, they, they passed metro funding this year. Yeah. Metro, metro funding, right. definitely. And so, um, you know, in the last couple of minutes, um, we have about two and a half minutes left. Um, you know, what, what do you want to impart to voters? What, how, what's the hook here? What, 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 they leave this, they listen to this interview, and they say, well, oh, we, we love Danielle. We just need that hook that's going to really make, make her, you know, our number one choice, our number two, or even three or four. Because, hey, it's four choices in this election. You can pick four. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter where you end up. I mean, of course, everybody wants to be number one. But how how do you, how would you inspire that person if they're on the fence about your candidacy to pick you? Well, I, you know, I just I'd say what we were talking about earlier that I'm you know unique among all the candidates that I bring the experience. Like I said, that scientific, very rational, um, you know, evidence based perspective to the county, um, you know, to the council and to decision making, and that um, both as a scientist and as somebody who's tangled with the bureaucracy. I am committed to transparency. I'm committed to really working with people this county. The fact is, when I was, my family was going through um, what we went through, we needed local leaders who would listen and who would care about what was happening, and we didn't have them. No one was yeah. listening. So I want to be the change I needed then and still want to see. I will be a person in the county who is listening to whether it's the parents worrying about school or the small business owner who needs to figure out the permitting system or the large companies looking somewhere to, to locate. I want to be able to listens and cares and is the people yeah. face of the county. The election is June 26th, early voting June 14th. Those two dates are indelibly scribed in every candidate that I've come into <laughs> contact into their frontal lobe. And that is when voting starts. Please get out and vote. It's, it's, it's our duty. Where can people find you, Danielle, on the web, on, on the Internet? Okay, so my website is Maitiv, M-E-I-T-I-V, 2018.com. I am on um, Facebook, also Danielle Maitiv, and also Twitter. You can find Danielle Maitiv. I am active on all of them. As you know, I'm 
always chatty on Facebook, so if folks want to interact and talk, they can come to the page. They can always email me at danielle at mayteve2018.com. I always want to hear from folks, listen to their ideas and concerns. Yeah. And yeah. represent and, everyone in the county. And let me vouch that you are uh, responsive. You always listen to people. You're fair, you're transparent, and you're honest. And um, I think you're a, a fundamentally decent human being. So thanks for doing this, Danielle. Um, I, I wish you the best of luck. It's a lot of time, a lot of effort, late nights, early mornings, a lot of rubber chicken dinners, um, bad <laughs> breakfasts, and meeting you know, sometimes one or two people in a room is how it's done, one handshake at a time. Those conversations, these conversations are important. So I, I thank you. Thank candidates for running and doing and stepping up and being leaders in our, you know, million and one person community. So um, good luck to you. I think you're going to do really well. Thanks so much. It's really, really enjoyed this conversation. All right, Danielle. We have a great do. week. As you know, we don't have enough media, so I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. I try. And you know what? Sometimes, you know, I, I, it's week to week, day to day sometimes, and you know, just try to get the information out there and let people know that who the candidates are, their positions, how they're going to impact our community. And that's what it's all about. And that's why I provide what I think is a, a valuable service. So with that, happy Memorial Day weekend. Enjoy it and knock doors and go out and meet as many people as you can, and then uh, June 26th will be here sooner than you know it, and I'm sure you're <laughs> counting down the days. <laughs> All right. All right. Good talking to you, uh, You too. Take care. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye. All right. That was Danielle Matif. She is running for county council at large. She's a Democrat. The election is June 26th, so we'll be back again soon. Next Sunday, we'll be live. Not sure who we'll be talking to, but we'll be talking to somebody. So with that, have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend, and remember why we have this holiday and what it's all about. So if you see somebody who has served or is currently serving or plans to serve, thank them, because that is why we have a functioning democracy. With that, have a great week.